1: Your genes can be influenced by hormones and so that's typically when we do see different changes in hair texture is when there's different hormonal changes so that can be during puberty you know after a baby or on any type of like a hormone replacement a lot of people see it after chemotherapy their hair grows back
0: stress is the inflammation that robs us of life energy and happiness our typical solutions for gut health and hormone balance All right, today we have Samaria Granberry, who is a licensed and registered dietitian nutritionist. She is also a proud student of trichology through the World Trichology Society and founder of Feeding the Root. Through Feeding the Root, she provides evidence-based nutrition and trichology therapy to empower individuals to make more informed decisions about hair and health. Driven by her love for wellness and her own hair issues she's overcome, Ms. Granberry takes pride in helping others get to the root of their hair and scalp issues. And with her past experiences and professional training in nutrition and trichology, she's bringing a fresh treatment option to the field. I'm so excited to talk about this. I found Samaria very, Oddly, like you know, through Instagram rabbit holes, with like a friend, I met Jackie Johnson, who I just loved. We did a lovely interview, and then I was on her Instagram. So, anyway, in a roundabout way, Samaria commented on that, and I saw she did some scalp and hair therapy, and people want this topic. So I'm so excited to have you on today to talk about this. Welcome, Samaria.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here today.
0: Thank you. So I want to talk about, I think like your story probably has a lot to do with this. Mm-hmm. So let's just get it out there. Let's talk about why you would spend time going to school for four years, plus at least two more years for a master's plus another year for trichology, which we'll talk about next. But I'm going to guess you weren't just like, Oh, I'd like to just be a permanent student. So even though it's great to always be learning and to always be a student, but talk to us about your own hair and scalp issues and like, what happened and how that's led to where you are now.
1: Yeah. So I kind of have different experiences, like growing up my experiences with my family and then also like personal experiences. So I'll take it back to like my childhood and kind of high school like I grew up very active, you know, playing basketball, soccer, all these things. I also grew up on a small farm, so outdoors, agriculture, and I grew up eating a very typical like african American southern diet, but I also grew up watching my dad struggle with psoriasis, you know he has psoriasis on his scalp, my dad was a landscaper, you know, so he was outside, you know exposed to lots of different things outside, so he and he's used. Tar gel, a tar gel from his dermatologist for really as long as I can remember. And, you know, the psoriasis spread from his scalp to his body. But he always just used that tar gel, you know, for psoriasis. And there's also other women in my family that have struggled with hair loss and they've worn wigs and hair pieces their entire life, you know, to cover those things up. They go to their dermatologist and they go back to their cosmetologist, you know, and then back again in order to cover it up or, you know, get shots or steroids or whatever it is, you know, and they're still struggling. And there's really no one in my city who is offering the treatment option that looks at the whole person and not just their symptoms. And so that's really my experiences with my family. And then with my own personal experiences, you know, from a young age, I grew up getting chemical relaxers. So I was Mm -hmm. getting these Chemical relaxers on my scalp to straighten my hair, and I always wore my hair straight all the time. It never grew past my chin; uh, it was always really short. And I remember having chemical scalp burns. You know, in middle school, I would have you know burns on my scalp. And then over the summer, I would get extensions. I would get braids so that I could swim, sweat, play basketball. You know, do all these things freely. And then in high school, I went vegetarian. So I went vegetarian. I don't know what inspired me to go vegetarian, but I ended up going vegetarian in ninth grade. And then I also went what I called vegan. You know, it wasn't a healthy type of vegan. Like I was just kind of not eating chicken nuggets and eating french fries. I don't remember anything super traumatic happening, but I know that I wasn't doing what was best for my body because my hair wasn't growing well. You know, I was dealing... I had just cut off all of my relaxed, chemically relaxed hair. And so I was dealing with this new hair texture. You know, my body was changing rapidly because I was a teenager. I mean, I was going through puberty, doing a lot of sports and things like that. And I wasn't giving my body what it needed to really thrive. My hair was, you know, super dry, brittle. Uh, I remember, you know, dealing with like, really dry dandruff, scalp. I didn't have a regular menstrual cycle until I went to college. And so it was just a lot going on like in high school. And I didn't know that I wasn't giving my body, you know, what it needed. And so like with more education and more experiences, I realized that I was doing it all wrong. You know, just because I wasn't eating meat doesn't mean that I was healthy. You know, I probably was really under eating for the rate of like my metabolism, like at that time. And so I really shouldn't have excluded all of those things, and so that all of those kind of brought me to kind of where I am today, and, and really being interested in trichology and studying trichology. And so, nutrition is the second leading cause of hair loss around the world, right? And as a nutrition professional, I'm like I am uniquely equipped with the education and the tools to bring this treatment option to the field and combining it with trichology and also having that education from like an external perspective as well as, you know, combining it with my training as a dietitian to bring this treatment option to the field. So. Yeah, that's kind of my story and kind of what has brought me here today.
0: Well, I want to talk about your story for a moment before we get into trichology, because I think that people can see themselves in everyone's stories sometimes, right? And so the first thing that stuck out to me is that you're getting chemical relaxers. And so we're burning our scalp, which reminds me of when I used steroids short term for my skin issues, and thin that skin. And then later on, I would burn my skin accidentally with stuff, because it would be much more sensitive. So you skin sensitive, scalp sensitive skin, I think when we say that we need to point out that this is like, it's a thing. And also it's also a not funny, not funny, but we all are like this as humans. We all want to have what we don't have. And so it's like, you probably have gorgeous hair. I'm just going to guess my sister-in-law has, I'm going to guess. Maybe you have curly Mm -hmm. hair if you're getting Uh relaxers. My sister-in-law has like this gorgeous curly hair and, and she straightened it one day. I was like, what are you doing? it's so beautiful. Right. But we all feel this way. We all want the opposite of what we have and that's okay. I think it's like good to say it out loud.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, And so it's interesting that you knew so many people that struggled with hair loss and you recall that maybe It's relevant to maybe mention, maybe not, because I think absolutely anything with skin or hair moves us to action in a different way than other symptoms because it's vanity, whether we like it or not. It's not really, I mean, it's not okay to lose our hair and have skin rashes and whatnot. It's not really, but it like moves us to action faster than some other things because we don't feel good about ourselves. And you mentioned this somewhere, like everyone wants gray hair, but culturally, if you struggle with hair, as a black woman, it's like really not okay. Right. Like everyone's into like, weight. like it's a really big deal to have amazing right. hair to be told that you have a gorgeous hair is like the best. It might be like the highest form of a compliment, right? Like right. I would like that compliment too. But like, I think, I think it's like more ingrained almost. Right.
1: Yes. Isn't that true? Yes, for sure. But uh, like in our culture as you know, African Americans, as black people around the world, hair is such a huge part of our culture. And so, you know, when you are losing your hair, it's just so, so much more significant. I and mean, I think that seeing a practitioner or someone that is outside of your culture, you know, and look at your hair as more just like a symptom, like your hair loss as a symptom, and not take into account that this is a big part of your culture and how you see yourself, how people, you know, how other people see you, it's definitely really important. And so that's why, you know, I am excited to work with women, you know, in my area that are within my culture to help to show them like, hey, I see it all. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a part of the culture. I see it. I know that you have, you know, worn wigs all of your life to try to cover this up. But like, hey, let's get to the bottom of it and figure out what is it the, the root cause of that. So yeah.
0: pretty dang excited that you're filling that gap, especially. I mean, and also you didn't like go out and practice for a long time to realize that you wanted that. Like you saw it right away, which <laughs> Kudos to you (laughs) because not everyone could like we tend to go and do the traditional thing and realize, you know, I think I really like to do that thing I'm passionate about. And as a side note, I think it's also relevant to mention you said what I call vegan, like I was changing out chicken nuggets for French fries, And I would say, I think I see this a lot. And I imagine there's listeners that hear that see their high school daughters or friends, daughters that are going vegetarian. And I don't have comments necessarily positive or negative, but vegan, you have to do quite carefully because we're not getting good amino acids. And I have a lot of feelings about that mm-hmm. because of what we see in practice, but that's okay. You're acknowledging like it wasn't really working super well. So, right. Okay. Before I read your bio, I didn't even know the Society of Trichology was a thing. So tell me about how you, one, found out about them, got interested in them. Tell us about what trichology is (laughs) and like what's going into that.
1: Yeah. So like I said, I obviously am a dietitian and we don't really learn about hair loss in school. And so a couple of years ago, like I've always loved like hair and learning about my hair and like the science of my hair. And so, a couple of years ago, I looked into like professional study, you know, of trichology because I didn't know what it was either. I mean, trichology is a relatively new practice in the U.S., even though it's been practiced around the world in new Europe for decades. It's mm-hmm. relatively new in the U.S. And so, I just kind of looked on Google for some professional education, and I came across the World Trichology Society, which is a society that trains. Cosmetologists, medical professionals to become certified trichologists. And you no know, so certified trichologists, you know, they don't diagnose or anything like that. It's typically seen as the bridge between cosmetology and dermatology. So, whereas mm-hmm. you know, cosmetology is going to look at things from a more external perspective, you know, cover things up, make things look pretty, you know, dermatology, more a medical doctor, so, you know, medications and things like that. Trichology is kind of that bridge. So when you go see a trichologist, say, for example, you went to your cosmetologist and they gave you a hairpiece to cover it up. You went to your dermatologist and, you know, they are giving you steroid shots or something like that. You go to a trichologist, and your trichologist will do a very thorough medical history, well, let me say the World Trichology Society, trichologists are trained to do a very thorough medical history and really find what it is, if it's, you know, it's your thyroid, if it's nutritional, and then refer you back. So almost give you the tools to go to your dermatologist or go to your physician or go to an endocrinologist to say, hey, this is what was found. Can you help me with this? Mm -hmm. I love it. So that's basically like what trichology is. I will say that, you know, medical science is really just starting to understand these issues related to like scalp and hair health. So there's not a lot of definitive reasons, but we do know like common triggers and how to address those.
0: Side note, my brain just went here. I mean, there's like a slightly different microbiome going on up here in the scalp, right? Than even the rest of our body. And we've like addressed skin stuff for a long time. But like you said, hair is typically then cosmetology. Mm-hmm. Not, we haven't really had, you know, something beyond dermatology to really look at it, but it's slightly different than uh, really the other areas of our skin. So, right. and actually, another random side note is trichology just scalp hair or is it like other hair on your body? <laughs> other so,
1: as well. So, typically, it is just like scalp and hair health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It. And then also, like, kind of to your point, we just think of Like, cosmetology just kind of thinks of the hair and not just, like, that there's an entire, you know, piece of skin underneath the hair, Mm -hmm. which is super important, you know, because that's where your hair grows from. Mm -hmm. So, it's, like, without this, without that healthy scalp, you know, the hair doesn't grow well so.
0: you mentioned that it's kind of new in the u.s in general but it's been around longer so can you tell me about the roots of trichology in the sense of like when you say that is it does it have roots in a particular culture or country or whatever or like who was the guy and maybe you don't know and that's okay too mm-hmm. or who kind of started it mm-hmm. um a little bit more about like where it comes from in general
1: I don't know a lot about like where it, where it came from necessarily. I do know that it, I think, originated in Europe in like the early 1900s. Mm, um, so I think trichology was even like established before dermatology. I want to say trichology was established in like 1910, and dermatology was established like around 1920 or so, like in the US. So. Interesting.
0: Interesting. So we're going to talk about nutrition and different hair and scalp issues, and then also come like root causes and stuff. Let's start with I think the nice bridge is that, you know, you're talking about being a dietitian, which I wonder if you were inspired to be a dietitian through different means um, than where you decided to focus on hair health. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You can feel free to insert that here as well. But let's talk about you mentioned nutrition being the second leading cause of hair loss. So let's talk about like what that actually means Mm
1: -hmm. from a
0: nutritional perspective. Give us some real life examples of when this is going on, you will see hair loss or when this is going on, you will see hair loss. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot of different reasons of hair loss. Number one is genetics, Mm -hmm. but number two is nutrition. And so, you know, with like restrictive dieting, You know, calorie deficits, Mm -hmm. um, extreme weight loss; those are very common causes of hair loss. What we call telogen effluvium is a diffuse uh, throughout the entire scalp, not patchy type of hair loss. Typically, comes back after the trigger. Digestive issues, things like that. You know, where you aren't digesting the nutrients because your hair is a non-essential tissue, right? So your body is going to use the foods that you eat and the nutrients to nourish and energize those. Major organs that are necessary for you to live, like things like your hair and your nails, aren't necessary. And so, your hair will definitely be the first one to be affected by that change in your diet or that extreme weight loss. is so something we also see with like bariatric surgery, mm-hmm. you know, from the stress, the surgery, and then also from the decreased surface area with the stomach, you see, you know, that telogen efflumium. So, yeah, nutrition is definitely a major cause and probably one of the most common that a lot of people don't even see as a cause. We don't kind of connect those and look at the body as a whole.
0: Mm -hmm. That was the first thing I thought of when you mentioned like extreme weight loss, like couldn't be a more significant one than that. And I don't know who created bariatric surgery, but what were they thinking when they changed the stomach from 50 ounces to one ounce? Like, couldn't you pick something more in between a 50 time reduction. I just don't even get it. Right. Maybe it worked well. I don't know. It just seems a little excessive. That's all. It's hard to digest and absorb things when you reduce all that surface area. But Mm
1: I digress. And then, and then, you know, with bariatric surgery, they have to take, you know, supplements and vitamins. But they're not counseled about that very well. Right. And a lot of patients, like I see so many trichologists will refer patients to me after bariatric surgery. And I'm like, oh, because The hospital, you know, where I worked, there's a bariatric clinic there and we worked in the you know, as dietitians we worked in the bariatric clinic, but I didn't realize that so many clients aren't counseled besides their doctor or a worksheet, you know, after bariatric surgery. And I'm like, No, how can you And the evidence is clear?
0: Like, how could you not be? (laughs) Right. I know. It's like how could you not be? But you know, we become a little bit like there's rules, right? You're supposed to have like this, it's supposed to be signed off on by a dietitian. And I think most bariatric centers do have like a specialty person in that area. So I think it just depends. I think people slip through the cracks a lot too. Like, I think you just like get things signed off. And I mean, that's what I've seen because I've done the consults before. You know, they're like, they need someone to do the consult. And a lot of times, like literally what medical stuff is, is like cleaning up pieces of like, well, can't do anything about that now. So let's just go in and uh, deal with the repercussions of it. And like, yep. here's the situation. So anyway. I was actually going to ask you, speaking of calorie deficits, I thought about this with your story. You were talking about being in, kind of an athlete or being very active and whatnot and having calorie deficits. Did you have a menstrual cycle at that time?
1: No, I didn't. Yeah, That's what I mentioned. Like I didn't have a regular menstrual cycle until I was in college.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So it was a very long time of up and downs and sometimes it is, sometimes it didn't. Mm-hmm. I'm now looking back. I see why, you know? Right. Yeah. So.
0: Okay, cool. So... First reason, genetics, then nutrition, including extreme weight loss, calorie deficits. You mentioned telogen effluvium is hair loss throughout the whole area. And it usually comes back after that trigger could be gut issues because you mentioned hair is not essential. So it's gonna be lost first, which is kind of a cool way to think about it. Is that, you know, I mean you talk about this for fertility too. It's like the body is super smart and it's gonna like put resources where it needs to if it's in a place of like distress, right? And we tend to like, we're so good, especially in America, like ignoring distress,
1: right? So
0: Were there other nutrition related hair loss and scalp issues on the list that we should keep going?
1: I think, so there's like iron deficiency. So there's Mm -hmm. like, you know, there's a lot of different, there's anemia, Mm um, there's a lot of different vitamin, like protein deficiency, you know, Mm -hmm. for someone who is like, you know, vegetarian or vegan protein deficiency, you know, right. Iron deficiency. Iron deficiency is huge, you know, and you start just like, you know, shedding your hair. And then thyroid issues
0: being related yeah, to thyroid, thyroid issues. Yeah. Super thing. And so yeah. like that probably takes us in a little bit to, I don't know if it does. I know like one of the topics you had was like hair changes after puberty and pregnancy. And actually I'd like to go there because those are like common times people would see a change in what their hair is doing. And you mentioned telogen effluvium, which is like hair loss everywhere for a short term and then usually comes back. Maybe do you also want to tell us about some other common types of hair loss as well, or maybe it relates to pregnancy or puberty or whatever in general. Will you just tell us about hair changes with puberty, pregnancy, whatever?
1: Yeah. So I can just tell you a little bit more about some of the main causes of Mm -hmm. hair loss. And then we can kind of go into talking about like puberty, hair changing. So just as like a little bit of a backstory with hair, it grows in four stages, the antigen phase, catagen, telogen, exogen. So antigen phase, is when it's growing, about two to seven years, depending on you know your genetics. Then the the catagen phase is what we call follicular regression, which the hair strand detaches from the follicle. That lasts mm-hmm. about one to three weeks, and then the telogen phase is when it sheds. So it's a, in that resting period, and that's when the hair comes out. And then then there's like the exogen phase. So those are the four stages of the hair cycle. And if at any point, for example, if your hair is an anagen phase or it, and you go on an extreme calorie deficit, your hair can push, you can stop that antigen phase and push it into the telogen phase prematurely, Mm. which causes that hair loss. So any Mm. trigger or anything that happens during those phases can push your hair out of the antigen phase into the resting phase and then into the exogen phase where it sheds.
0: Mm. I have some questions about this. One, will you tell us how long the telogen phase is? So the telogen phase is the resting period and it lasts
1: about three to four months. Okay. And what was the purpose of the exogen stage and how long is it? The exogen phase comes out, it sheds, and it's about one to three days. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm.
0: So my question is, if antigen is growing and it's two to seven years, hair all over could be in different stages, right?
1: Yes. Because there's about 100,000 hairs on your head, right? And each follicle can contain about three to five strands of hair per follicle. And so, they all can be in different stages at different times. Mm-hmm.
0: And as a side note, just only because I was doing some clubhouse rooms on this recently mm-hmm. in uh, another podcast is that we were talking about collagen and collagen degrades as we get older. And it's part of like it holds hair into its place. So, just aging without good collagen will release the hair as part of it. And I wonder, I'm sure like tons of other nutrients, right? there's always tons of nutrients in general. Okay. So we got these four stages. If we're in a deficit, we may stop a stage and then jump into the loss stage essentially, which is like not cool. So this should look like if you're having hair loss related to these stages, that should look like more patchy in different areas. Cause if the hair is growing in different stages in different places, then you shouldn't be losing all your hair. Whereas you were talking about telogen effluvium, which is like all over hair from a shock, from a trigger you know, and how long after that trigger is usually typical?
1: So it's about six to 16 weeks. So right, you know, maybe around like three months or so, you can kind of see it. So I just wanted to clarify the telogen of flumia. It's not like a complete baldness. It's more so just like thinning. So it's you're noticing more hair is coming out in the shower, more hair is coming out in your brush. Like in clumps Um, sometimes? Yes. Yeah. Kind of be like in clumps. There's not any bald patches in particular. That would be more like maybe like androgenetic alopecia or alopecia areata, but with the telogen effluvium, it's more diffuse, Mm. just thinning overall. Mm.
0: Well, now you have to tell us. Now you have to define the two types of hair loss that you just mentioned. Yeah, so (laughs) just (laughs)
1: glaze past that. (laughs) Yeah, we kind of go into some of the like very common like hair loss. So there's androgenic alopecia, which is the most common hair loss due to your genetics and your hormones. So it's basically where your testosterone is overrepresented in your body. And that could be due to a lot of, you know, issues why you have excess testosterone and it's converted to DHT and DHT is what causes it, hair loss.
0: might coexist with PCOS, which affects, I don't remember yes. how many women,
1: but you know, yes. one of the things with PCOS is elevated yes. testosterone
0: mm-hmm. in and case
1: that's like that. useful for someone listening. Right. And that's something that you see a lot, is, you know, mm-hmm. the androgen alopecia, or, you know, if on different types of like hormonal replacements, things that are anything that's really mm-hmm. changing your testosterone. And it, you typically see it at the top of your hair. It starts with like your crown. And so that is typically what happens when you have the, the genetic hair loss. It'll you'll start thinning right at the crown of your hair. It will start becoming a little bit thinner. There's different patterns that we see that kind of help us with the assessment and the diagnosis of what kind of hair loss it is. And then the alopecia areata is the autoimmune condition that causes like bald patches. So like mm-hmm. there's smooth bald, like in that one, like it's typically circular, smooth, and there's like bald patches, you know, throughout your, your hair.
0: Mm-hmm. And then you could lose all of your hair, right? It starts mm-hmm. as yeah. patches, yeah. but then you so can, you lose can it go everywhere. to
1: alopecia are, uh, areata, are, uh, alopecia universalis, and then alopecia totalis. So okay. that's like where you lose hair everywhere on your body. Got it. Well,
0: I got us a little off topic because we were going to talk about hair changes after puberty and pregnancy and then you told us about phases. So let's return to that.
1: Okay, so we'll kind of go into talking about like the reasons why your hair can change when you go through different stages in life with like hormones so science doesn't completely understand why this happens there's different shapes of the hair follicle if you have straight hair if you have curly hair and it's typically that's determined partly by your genes the genes that you have and so your dna might cause you to have perfectly round follicles which would you know result in straight hair and then more hoop or like hook shaped follicles will, you know, result in curlier, more coily hair. And so that's kind of how it determines, it's determined by your DNA. But we know that like your genes can be influenced by, you know, your hormones. And so that's typically when we do see different changes in hair texture is when there's different hormonal changes. So that can be during puberty, you know, after a baby, or on any type of like a hormone replacement, a lot of people see it after, you know, chemotherapy, their hair grows back, you know, with a different texture, a different density, a different feel. And so like like I said, it's not completely understood by science, but it is typically seen those genes maybe being turned on or off due to like your hormones and different lifestyle factors.
0: Okay. So this reminds me of people talking about when I hit puberty, I got curly hair for the first mm-hmm. time. So literally their follicles changing
1: shape due to hormones. Mm-hmm. How common that is. Yeah. I, I know. I actually have a friend who she just recently got off hormonal birth control and she's noticed her hair. She's around 26, I want to say. And she just recently noticed her hair is to become straight. It's growing out straight. So sure, your hair used to be curly and now it's straight.
0: Mm. So I don't know. No, I don't so I'm not know.
1: sure how common it is, but I definitely have seen it.
0: Would you say going off of hormonal birth control can be a common reason for hair loss?
1: I'm not really sure. I think that if when you are coming off hormonal birth control and your hormones kind of are starting to like level back out, you know that might cause hair loss. I think it would manifest differently for everyone, You know, mm-hmm. depending. So. Yeah.
0: And there could be those nutrient deficiencies that are caused. I mean, it could be a lot of things because it could resolve gut stuff. Right. So anyway, something had landed in my inbox today and it made me think of that. Okay. So we talked about puberty, hair in shape. Let's talk about pregnancy a little bit more because it's kind of normal postpartum to lose hair for a little bit. Can you speak to that?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you are pregnant, right, your levels of estrogen and progesterone, are different versus like once you have the baby, right? So when you have the baby, your levels of estrogen and progesterone kind of level back out, depending on if you're breastfeeding or not. I would say that it's typically about three months after you have the baby is when you're going to start noticing that the hair loss typically you know a lot of people see it like in their crown areas some people they see it just kind of telogen effluvium all over Um, and it's due to those hormone levels of progesterone and estrogen maybe more DHT you know producing more DHT causing more of that hair loss that wasn't happening during the pregnancy and so that's typically what that program and with telogen, your hair typically comes back. So if you aren't breastfeeding in three, four months after you have the baby, you're still losing your hair. I think that's when you would probably need to go see someone because typically your hormones should be leveled back out by that time.
0: Mm. Got it. Perfect. Okay. We've been talking about hair loss quite a bit. So let's talk about scalp conditions a little bit and root causes because this actually sort of doesn't really get much attention at all, does it?
1: Right. Like we have an entire layer of skin underneath our hair, Mm -hmm. right? And important to talk about because I feel like sometimes in the beauty industry, it's, we talk about the split ends, we talk about the hair strands, but as soon as the hair comes out of the scalp, it's no longer alive. You know, it's a dead piece of fiber. And the scalp is important because, you know, that's where your hair comes from. And there's a layer of muscles and tissues and, you know, nerves underneath the scalp that are important to get it into. So I'll just kind of briefly talk about two of the most common scalp issues. And one of them is called pittoriasis capitis, which is also known as dandruff. And then the other one is called seborrheic C- dermatitis, or for short, sebderm. C- so with the dandruff, it's, like I said, it's not completely understood what the root cause is, but we understand that there's an imbalance of fungus called Malastasia ovalis. I think that's how you say it. And it's, that's kind of the most accepted condition, a um, mm-hmm. reason why, you know, there's that dandruff. And it can be caused by stress, hormones, you know, oily scalp, because that, the yeast feeds off of the excess oil. Mm -hmm. And so and then with seborrheic dermatitis, so sebum, we have these on the scalp, they're sebaceous glands, and it's an excess of those um, sebaceous glands. So something in the body is triggering those sebaceous glands. You know, in excess, and it's putting out all of this sebum onto the scalp, leading to an overgrowth. And there's a balance. We need that balance. It protects the scalp. So when it's hot outside, that sebum, the body adapts so that that sebum can lock in the moisture on the scalp. And then when it's cold outside, right, it adapts so that it can protect the scalp from the cold. So that's an important mechanism. We need, though. You know, that sebum on the scalp, but. An excess of that sebum on the scalp can cause like super oily scalp, red patches, and really stubborn dandruff. It can even manifest like behind your ears or in the cracks of your nose. It doesn't just affect your scalp. And so there's a couple of stimuluses that we kind of like to look at like when it comes to weather or stressors on the nervous system, you know, stress, obviously, as you know, like working with skin stuff, you know, can really manifest in so many different ways. And it can definitely be a really huge trigger of seborrheic dermatitis. And then there's chemical triggers. So like hormones, nutrition, different pathogens can cause seborrheic dermatitis to flare up. And so really, there's things that we can do on it from a topical perspective to kind of manage those things. But there's always, you know, a deeper trigger that is stressing out those seborrheic Sebaceous glands.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for answering the question before I even asked it, which was like, yeah. "Ooh, why would we have overgrowth of sebum?" So yeah. weather stressors, so many, right? And I often will tell people that we don't usually note or see always how stress is affecting our skin until it's improved a little bit, and then we have an overt stressful incident because it's having a downstream effect on gut and all kinds of things. It's right. like the way it affects everything else is probably really affecting it. It's like. It's like a secondhand cause almost, right? right? Like, you know, this happens and this and then this type thing. And I was actually going to say, I feel like oily, like more sebum on the scalp probably also has, like, as you mentioned topical stuff, there seems to be a whole thing around like ways to wash hair, which I'm not, you know, way probably more into, but also like I look at the inside. So I'm like, I feel like it happens with gut stuff. And you mentioned pathogens as a potential mm-hmm. cause. So I'm glad that you feel that way mm-hmm. <laughs> as yeah. well. And I have a question. Is it incorrect then to call dermatitis dandruff? Because I feel like we use that pretty interchangeably.
1: So yeah, it's definitely different. So the piterasis capitis is like going to be the dandruff. It can be like oily dandruff. It can be like more dry dandruff, but that is that its own condition. And then the seabird dermatitis, its own separate condition.
0: But it doesn't really look different, does it or does it?
1: Yeah, it's actually to the... I guess, layperson, it might not look different mm-hmm. because I actually hat worked with someone who thought they just had really bad dandruff throughout their entire life, but they actually have seborrheic dermatitis. And one of the telltale signs of it is that it's not just in the scalp. It's also like behind the ears and it's also, mm-hmm. you know, in the cracks of the nose and it's more yellowy than white, So, like that waxy sebum is building up. And so it's more yellowy than like the white dandruff.
0: As someone who knows these things personally, I would also like, I would just echo, and I'm sure it's not every single time, but like as pathogenic or gut stuff is worse, I feel, and this is like maybe different than what we universally accept, but I feel like that changes from like yellow to white to less severe, whatever. And I mean, Mm -hmm. as a side note, Mm -hmm. like I just feel like that's what I see in practice with people and within my own history. So fun to talk about. Not really, but kind of, but good. Like someone needs to talk about it. I'm glad yeah. we're talking about okay. it. All right, cool. So let's talk about resolution a little bit. And I think what I want to really highlight here is like, what is normal for regrowth? And this might go back to like how hair grows, because this is the hardest part, is that usually someone's probably not going to listen to this unless they feel kind of personally affected by it. Maybe they will though maybe they will, because they're awesome. And they just are interested and they want to know for their own practice or whatever. Or maybe they want to share with a friend. Yes. So that's good. But there's a good chance that if you're someone's listening to this, they might be affected in some capacity, whether it was through puberty, pregnancy, or a more significant hair loss. So if someone's dealing with, I think a more significant hair loss, I think it might be nice for us to mention, what would be an expectation if things are going like, if you're doing the right things, like, it's not, Super duper fast, right? It takes a while for hair to grow in. So like what how do you help guide people with expectations around timelines for regrowth?
1: Right. So I'll say that the hair really only grows about like 0.1 to like 0.4 millimeters per day, right? So that's about 12 millimeters per month. So it's a very slow growing process. Granted, the hair does like turn over really quickly, right? It's a lot of cell turnover happening in the hair follicle. So it is growing really fast, but you don't see the hair grow really quickly, especially when there's maybe a traumatic issue or like after chemotherapy, you know, the hair follicle might need some time to kind of like readapt. So I would say for like definitely traumatic like hair loss situations, I would say six months at least. It takes time. The body has to kind of rework itself and kind of adapt and refocus its energy on regrowing hair. So I would say minimum six months. It's definitely a process and it takes patience. I think it also is important when I'm working with my clients is to like look at other things happening in their life because typically, you know, it's not just hair loss. Mm -hmm. And so looking at other things that are happening in their lives that are improving and getting better as well.
0: Right. Celebrating the things that are not just hair. I Mm -hmm. would, I would say the same thing about skin, Mm -hmm. which pretty much has a ton of overlap. So it's not like, we just have to go by literally physiology. It's like, Hey, it only grows this fast when it's things are working well. Right. So, but that's slow and we're impatient people. So what is your advice, you know, from a totally different perspective here, what can a woman do on the interim to kind of help make things work? Maybe it's a wig. Maybe it's not Mm -hmm. like what kind of things do you tell women or what do women come to you with that they're using for coping mechanisms on the interim Mm -hmm. when hair loss is going on? And as a second question, what would you say to a woman to help her keep her head above water when she feels like this just sucks?
1: (laughs) Right. Um, What are your thoughts? So... In the like in the waiting period, that's kind of where trichology comes in. There are different trichological treatments that we can do, like that are approved by the FDA. There's the laser hair growth. I'm not sure if heard of it is approved for hair growth. So stimulating those, making sure that the antigen phase is, is extended as possible. Granted, like from like we said on a from a physiological level, it only grows a certain amount per day but we can use things from a topical perspective kind of encourage that growth. There are other like different creams, different like herbals, oils. There's not a magical hair growth oil, right? That is going to mm-hmm. make it just grow exponential amount in a, a short period of time. But there are different things that you can do. Like you were kind of also saying, like, you know, hair toppers, wigs, wraps. The only thing I would say is that ensure that you aren't causing more damage. So mm-hmm. like I know in my community, you know, like, we will wear cornrows, like cornrow our hair down and then put a wig on top of it, right? But those cornrows are probably causing a lot more Mm -hmm. tension. And then there's, you know, such thing as tension, you know, traction alopecia, right? That is Mm -hmm. from that tension. So when you are looking for things to kind of help cover up that hair loss, make sure you aren't doing more harm than good in that. And then there's a lot of different, I know, you know, for women who are going through, you know, chemotherapy, there's a lot of hairstylists that Specialize in creating like medical wig caps and things like that. And I think that's also another huge part of what, you know, I do as a trichologist is helping people prepare, you know, for that. Because sometimes it's like you have to. You kind of have to go through the hair loss because your body is trying to take care of something else, mm-hmm. you know. And so, trying to like just mentally prepare and get your mind ready like, mindset is so huge, right? When it comes to making change, when it just comes to preparing for something, you know, how's your support system? How do you see yourself more than just your hair, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, preparing women to um for that hair loss and kind of in supporting them in that,
0: yeah. I'm so glad we can't understate it, that's my point. Mm-hmm. So, I'm glad you. Brought that up. So and it's nice to have someone who can refer you to like a place that makes great wig. I mean, there's great wigs, right? There's good options. But when you're wearing a wig, aside from like, having your hair roll tightly, can a wearing a wig? Are there some that are so tight fitting that you can have some damage or breakage?
1: Yes, for sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. You can, like, especially, you know, if you have the band around your hairline, because, like, the hair around your hairline, you know, there's a lot of bellus hairs there, a lot of short, mm-hmm. um, like, fine hairs that can be easily torn out by this traction. And so, if you are wearing, you know, a wig, you definitely want to be careful, like, underneath that wig, like, how are you caring for your hair underneath? Because it definitely can cause, like, traction, you know, make the hair loss worse.
0: Mm-hmm. I love it. It's been so much fun to talk about all things hair and scalp health and bringing awareness to the scene in all the ways. And so I'm just happy we got to have this conversation. You mentioned helping people keep their head above water is like mindset stuff. Is there anything like if someone was listening to this and they're going through hair loss, is there anything you want to say to that woman or that male?
1: Yeah, I would definitely just say like encourage you and know that like you're not alone in that because over half the population suffers from hair loss or some type of scalp issue in their lifetime. Mm. And also like, I want you to know like you aren't crazy, you know, like, you know, your body well. And even if you've gone to the doctor and they say that your blood panel is fine and everything's fine, but you know, your body, and you know, that your hair is thinner than usual or you're noticing some. It's not normal. So know that. And definitely, like, keep searching, looking for someone, a uh, practitioner who is going to look at you as your body as a whole and give you the help that you need. And along those with that, like the WTS, so the World Trichology Society, they have a directory of trichologists throughout the world that are trained, you know, we also go through like continuing education. So we're continually studying and learning in order to keep our certification. And the directory is on www.worldtrichologysociety.org. I mean, you can just go in and put your location and there's you can find a trichologist near you.
0: Super helpful. And we've done a good job of promoting the World Trichology (laughs) uh, Association or Society today. But tell us where people can find you online.
1: Yeah, so you can find me at www.feedingtheroot.com. I'm also on Instagram at feedingtheroot and also on Facebook at feedingtheroot. And I just talk about you know nutrition i also love gardening so sometimes talk about gardening and you know where you're learning where your food comes from and things like that but you know i talk a lot about hair and scalp issues just from a nutrition perspective and psychology and on my website you can also learn more about like my mission and how you work with me services that i offer and things like that
0: love it thanks so much for coming on today thank you